G'day. Well, good morning, and thank you for uh, putting up with me this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Glenn. Uh, I am currently a pastoral resident up at Sovereign Grace Church in Murunga, uh, and was one of the uh, designated survivors who had to stay back from going... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, Look, it's actually a real joy to be with you this morning. Uh, ever since we sent, uh, what, 30 people out from uh, Sovereign Grace in Morunga to come and plant this church, I have been looking forward to the day when I could come down and be with you. And, uh, and here we are. And it's a real joy. Um, hey, did you know that in Kenya, if you accidentally put your shirt on inside out, it's believed that that's a sign that you're going to get a new shirt. In South India, uh, in Kerala, it's believed that if you have an itchy hand, it means money is coming your way soon. Be nice, wouldn't it? Or if a bride puts her right foot over the threshold of the new house after the, uh, as they first enter, it means the marriage will be blessed. If, maybe you know this one, if three different people say the same thing to you, at different times, it's a sure sign that it's going to happen. Does any of that sound familiar? Have you heard any of those? They're the, the superstitions that quietly reside in our cultures and give us this idea that what we hope for, if we see those things, then it's going to happen. If I see this sign, then what I hope for will definitely happen. I mean, if you think about it, it, it's likely that these superstitions came about because we're wanting to see something that will give us hope. We want to see something that will, that will we'll know, therefore, this is going to happen. I think it explains why things like uh, horoscopes, tarot cards, reading tea leaves, I think that it explains the attraction of those kinds of things. We want signs that will tell us that what we hope for really will come to pass. So what is it that we hope for then? And we hope for all sorts of things. Maybe, maybe you hope to get married one day. Maybe you're hoping for a new job. Maybe you wish for children. Maybe you wish you didn't have so many children. <laughs> maybe, maybe you just like for life to be a little more simple and straightforward. Less busy. You know, we all hope for something, usually lots of things, but the one thing in common that all of our hopes have is, there, is that they are blessings. They're good stuff. We hope for the good things. And so we're looking for those signs that are going to show us that it's actually going to happen. If you catch that bouquet at the wedding, yep, you're next. You're going to be married next. If your LinkedIn account is being viewed by so many people, yep, you've got a job coming soon. We want to look for those signs that our hopes will come true. Well, this morning, what I wanted to do then was just look with you at John chapter 2, which is the wedding at Cana. Now, in my experience of this passage of Scripture, it is actually a pretty well-known story, but not well understood. 
Uh, you, you may have heard this preached at weddings uh, and all sorts of strange places, but here we are. It is not a wedding, uh, and it is church on Sunday, and we're going to look at John chapter 2. So let's do that. I believe if you have your Bibles, uh, then I'd invite you to open up with me to John 2, and it will be on the screen behind me as well. John 2, starting from verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. If you're looking for a title uh, for today's sermon, uh, the title I've given this one is Sign of the Times. And we've got three points that I want to hang our thoughts on. They are hope renewed, hope in the present, and hope for the future. So hope renewed, hope in the present, and hope for the future. Now let me introduce you to a couple of people that are in this story. Andrew and John. Andrew and John weren't your average Jews. They were discontent in a good way. They wanted more. In fact, the last thing they wanted to do was be like everyone else, to join the rat race, to get a job and just go about the mundane. They wanted something that would satisfy. So much so that they found themselves in a place called Bethany, listening to a man dressed in camel's hair and eating locusts, John the Baptist. John the Baptist kept speaking about this guy who would come, the Messiah. He's the one that Andrew and John had been reading about in the Old Testament scriptures. They were looking for him, and John the Baptist kept talking about him and saying that he was coming. Now, people were coming out to John from everywhere, and he was baptizing them in the River Jordan, and John's message was a message of hope. It was compelling. So it's no wonder then that Andrew and John, when they heard John the Baptist cry out one day, Behold! the Lamb of God, and he pointed at Jesus, that immediately Andrew and John left John the Baptist and started following Jesus. They wanted to find out if this 
really was the guy that they were hoping for. But here's the question, how would they know? What would he do? What sign would he give them to assure them that their hopes were well placed with him? Well, it seems like a strange place for Jesus to begin, but here he is in a small country town called Cana. He's attending a wedding, and with him are his first five disciples, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and John. We're not told why they're there, apart from the fact that they were invited. We don't know who the, bridegroom, who the bride is and who the groom are. In fact, we don't even know where Cana is. It's classic John style. Only record the points that are important, the details that are important for making the point that he wants us to get. Did you notice that as you were reading through it? You know, the, the details of the wedding couple and other things that happen at the wedding, they're just not recorded by John. They're left out on purpose so that nothing would distract us from the main point. <laughs> Even Jesus' mother is not named. The wedding at Cana then is the perfect canvas for Jesus to paint his first sign, water into wine. See, it's just not about the wedding. It's about the wine. Now, having no wine at a Jewish wedding was a big problem. It brought shame on the bridegroom, and I'm told could even have opened him up to be liable for lawsuits. That's why Jesus' mother came to Jesus. Have a look with me at verse 3. It says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, I don't know about you, but if I ever called my mum woman, <laughs> let's just say it would not be well received. <laughs> but... <laughs> That's, not what, that's actually not what's going on here. So Jesus is not being disrespectful to his mother. The word in Greek that is being translated here as woman is probably more closely associated to the way we might use ma'am in English. So it's not disrespectful. But at the same time, it's not familial. It's not the way you would expect a son to speak with his mother. So when Jesus calls his mother woman... He's not telling us something about her. He's telling us something about him. He's no longer identifying himself as the son of Mary, but as the son of God. And as the son of God, he knows that he has been sent on a specific purpose. He has a mission. And it is not solving wine shortages at weddings in rural Galilee. He has come for what John calls his hour. And that wedding was not his hour. So Jesus is not saying to his mom, look, I'm not going to help. In essence, what Jesus is really saying here is he's telling her and he's telling his disciples, look, what I am about to do is just a sign of what's to come. This is not my hour. 
what I'm about to do is a sign of what will come through the hour that is coming ahead. So Jesus is, so that's, now you may have picked up on this too as we're reading through, John doesn't use the word miracle, he uses the word sign. And if you were reading through the whole Gospel of John, you would notice that that's his favorite term for Jesus' miracles. It's a sign, it's an announcement It's heralding something that is going to happen. And this one is Jesus' first sign. It's the beginning of things. So the question then that we must ask is, what is water into wine a sign of? How does it manifest or reveal Jesus' glory? Is it maybe in the fact that he could miraculously speed up the fermentation process and therefore has power over the molecular structure of water? Is that it? I mean, you know, simply that he's powerful. Well, if that were the case, if that was the point, then maybe we would expect more to see something like the calming of a storm. Or maybe it's in the quantity of the wine. I mean, he did make a lot of wine that day. It's about 630 litres of wine. That's, eight, that's about 800 bottles. It's quite the collection. But it's hardly the world's biggest collection. You know, for those of you who love facts, the world's biggest collection of wine is found in Moldova, where they have over 2 million bottles of wine in underground caves. Awesome. So no, the point is not that Jesus is all-powerful, though he is. And the point is not that it was a lot of wine, though it was. Turning water into wine is a sign of the new covenant. It's a sign that God is going to redeem his people and restore their blessings. Okay, Glenn, how did you get that? (laughs) Well, to see that you'd have to be familiar with the kinds of signs that John and Andrew were looking for. John and Andrew had been reading their Old Testament. They had been reading about what this guy, this Messiah, the one who was to come, uh, would do and the things that would happen when he came. So they would have that in their mind. They'd be looking for it. They'd be looking for the prophecies about Jesus. So come with me to have a look at an Old Testament prophecy in the book of Amos, chapter 9, in verse 13. So if you have your Bible, flick over to Amos. Uh, If you don't know where Amos is, the contents page is there for a reason. Uh, It's one of the minor prophets. So it is a small book, and it's hard to find sometimes. But Amos, chapter 9, and this is what it says in verse 13. Behold... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. See, wine is a sign that God is restoring Israel. 
And it's not just a bit of wine, it's a lot of it. The ground is so fertile that the vineyards are just laden with grapes, more than they can harvest. So the mountains are just dripping with these grapes that they can't even pick up because they've got so many, and and the streams of wine are literally flowing down the hills. It is a vivid picture of abundance, a picture that says, look, Even the things that we don't need for survival are so great and so abundant. But notice that these blessings, the wine, is not actually the thing that is hoped for. It is just the sign of the things that are being hoped for. So it's a sign that points to something, or in this case, someone. So if you go back two verses in Amos 9, Verse 11, it says that the Lord is going to restore Israel through the line of David. It's through a person. So verse 11 says, In that day I will raise up the booth or the house of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So it is through the line of David, King David, that God will do this new work. Okay? So the blessings that come along are just the natural consequences of what will happen when this person arrives. So what will he do? What is the hope? Verse 12, that they, being this person who would come through the line of David, may possess the remnant of Edom, And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Now, that is language that is steeped in Israel's history. And it is hard for us to understand at first. So I think the easiest way for me to explain what that verse is, is to actually quote James, who quotes it in Acts chapter 15, verse 17. And he says it this way. He says that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles, that is not Jews, who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. This new work that God is going to do by raising up the Messiah from the line of David is to call all the nations to himself. That's the hope. That's why these disciples believed in Jesus when they saw him turn water into wine. That's why turning water into wine manifests Jesus' glory. Jesus has come to inaugurate, to begin the new covenant, to restore the house of David and call people from all nations to himself. The disciples' hope was renewed. The promised Messiah was here. They had seen a sign of it. That's what John wants us to see too. John wants us to see that that water turned into wine is a sign of hope, not just for the disciples, but for all the nations. It's a sign of hope for you and I. So what about you? Have you lost hope? Do you feel like sometimes you're just going through the motions? Do you find yourself thinking, look, when will this train stop? Because I think I just want to get off. I'm not sure where this is all going or even if it's worth it. You're constantly tired. 
You dream about your Christmas holidays, but when they're over, you just feel like, here we go again. And church has just become yet another thing in the midst of a busy schedule. Maybe, maybe you've lost hope because you're hoping for things that are too small or things that are too soon or things that are too weak. You see, hope that sustains us through difficulties, hope that sustains us in the long haul is hope that is in something that is much greater than the things we face now. If all I'm hoping for is a sustainable mortgage, three kids, and good health, then I'll be constantly disappointed and discouraged because these things just won't satisfy. But if I'm hoping for something that is better than health, something that is beyond this life, something that will last forever and satisfy in ways that this life never could, that hope is the kind of hope that will sustain me through anything that this life has to throw at me. Do you have that hope? Is your hope set fully on Christ? Well, that's what John would have us do in response to this sign, he wants us to renew our hope in Jesus, to lift our eyes beyond the mundane and the monotonous, and to look to Jesus, who is able to satisfy in ways that life just isn't designed to do. You know, when we do that, when our hope is set firmly in Christ, we'll start to realize that actually some of the blessings that he's promised are actually for now. And that is our second point, hope in the present. You know, the funny thing about hope is that it's always for something that we don't have. So I I remember that as a kid, uh, I was hoping for a bicycle as a Christmas present. Now, in our family, we'd been told growing up that we had to wait until we were 12 to get our bicycle. There wasn't any moral reason for this. I'm not even sure if there was any good reason for it. (laughs) It was just simply that my mum had to wait till she was 12, and so therefore that was it. We had to wait till we were 12, so there. (laughs) I had it this hard. You have to have it hard too, you know. So my brother, who's two years older than me, um, had been longing for a bicycle. And this was the year that he turned 12, like Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel. My brother was getting old, and he knew that the time was coming. And finally, that year came. And as excited young boys, we uh, woke up early, way too early, on Christmas morning, and we, we ran into the room, and there, actually, if I remember correctly, we were renovating, so we were in the caravan. So we were poking in through the, the, uh, the window, looking into the room where the, the thing was, and to our utter joy and delight, there, in all their glory, was not one, not two, but three brand new bicycles. Oh, my goodness. All our hopes had come true that Christmas. In fact, not just my brother's hopes, my hopes and my sister's hopes, at a level that, well, let's just say 
my brother was perhaps not as excited as we were. He immediately started getting despondent, thinking I had to wait two more years than my brother did and four more years than my sister. That is not okay, not fair. <laughs> when Jesus' mum said, when, sorry, when Jesus said to his mum, look, my hour has not yet come, the implication of that statement is that it will come. That there is a time when it will happen. And in that hour, that hour is when the hopes of all Israel would be fulfilled. Those who'd been waiting for a long time and those who hadn't. So the blessings symbolized by the good wine will come through Jesus' hour. So if, if you were to read on in John's Gospel and Every time you notice that word hour, you notice that each time it's talked about, it keeps getting filled up with meaning. It keeps being unpacked and understood more clearly until we get to John chapter 12 and verse 23, and Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Jesus' hour is John's shorthand for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. His suffering that leads to salvation. His death that brings us life. So in John 2, the disciples' hope was renewed. And Jesus gave them a sign that the blessings would come through his hour, that's what they believed in. But for us, as we look back at Jesus' death and resurrection, we look back and see what he has already accomplished. He has already accomplished that salvation through the cross and poured out his blessings. We're not hoping for that anymore in the same way that Andrew and John were in John chapter 2. So here's the point. Just like the wine on that day in Cana was a very real, tangible blessing that served as a sign for what's yet to come. As Christians, we have very real, tangible blessings now that are signs of what's yet to come. You see, in the next chapter of John, in John chapter 3, we read about the famous midnight conversation with Nicodemus. And Jesus tells him that the way to enter God's kingdom is to be born of the Spirit. You must be born again. So in other words, John's showing us systematically that it's through the Spirit that the blessings signified by the wine will come to us. It's not something we can do on our own. Paul explains it this way in Ephesians 1, that as Christians, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So the Spirit takes all the blessings of salvation accomplished by Jesus in his hour on the cross and brings them into the life of the believer. We have very real, tangible blessings now which are a sign of what's yet to come. So... What are those blessings? Well, they're the kind of blessings that are much better than a new bike for Christmas. It's the blessings of forgiveness. 
of redemption through his blood. It's the pouring out of his grace like the abundance of wine that he has lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. It's the blessing of being clothed in Jesus' righteousness. It's the blessing of adoption, as we were singing about this morning, of, of being called children of God. It's the blessing of conviction of sin and then the corresponding power over it. It's the blessing of understanding his word. It's the blessing of spiritual gifts for building one another up. It's the blessing of skills and talents for specific purposes, whether it's administration or hospitality or helping. It's the blessing of long-suffering and patience in trials. It's the blessing of peace and confidence in the face of bad news. It's the blessing of being part of a new family in Christ. All of these blessings have come to us now through Jesus' work on the cross by the Holy Spirit. They are present signs that point to the certainty of what Jesus had already done, and they fill us with hope of what he will do in the future. We've been born again to a living hope. We're not looking forward in hope for those things anymore. They have already come. They are a present reality for all those who have been born of the Spirit. So when the disciples saw the water turned into wine, Jesus tells us that they believed. Right? Andrew and John are an example for us of how we should respond also. We are to respond in belief. Do you believe that as Christians you already have these blessings through the Spirit? Or to use the language of John 2, are you just looking at the wine? Or are you drinking and enjoying it like the master of the feast? You see, it's one thing to say that I believe that I'm forgiven in Christ. But acting upon that is how you really know whether you believe it. So, if I believe I'm forgiven, then here's how I'll see it. Instead of walking around with a low-grade feeling of guilt, I'll be filled with thankfulness to the Lord. Every time I become aware of sin in my life or failures, instead of thinking of what good deed that I can do to make up for it, I will go straight to the cross where Jesus paid for that sin already. I'll remind myself that Jesus' blood has been shed for that sin. And yes, I want to grieve that sin and wish I had never done it, but I don't stay there. It's a godly grief that leads to repentance, and I receive his forgiveness and I walk in the freedom. And then that will then affect how I interact with others. If I'm really forgiven in the Lord, then I know that I don't have to prove myself to other people because I'm secure in Jesus. I won't try and hide my sin from other people because I know it's already been dealt with by the Lord. Instead, I'm willing to confess it to others, uh, and in so doing, I'm putting my ultimate hope in Christ who is able to deal with that sin fully. And I think perhaps the clearest and oftentimes the hardest way we demonstrate belief that we are forgiven is by forgiving others. 
We forgive because he first forgave us. That is how we will know if we really believe that we've been forgiven through Jesus. Well, likewise, if I really believe that I've been blessed with the power over sin, which Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, Paul's praying for the Ephesians and he's, he prays that they would know the same power that is at work in them, the power that uh, he exerted in Christ when he was raised from the dead. That's some pretty incredible power. That's the power at work in us Christians. If I believe that that power is at work in me, then I will begin to see increasing victory over patterns of sin in my life. Every time I'm faced with temptation, I'm going to cry out to the Lord and ask Him to give me the strength to deal with that temptation and to resist. I will look for His power to overcome my weakness instead of relying upon my strategies to manage my sin and try and cover it up. Or if I believe that I've been given spiritual gifts for the building up of the church, then I'll pursue them. I'll put myself in positions where I would be able to use them and be in positions where I would have to rely upon him in order to be a useful blessing to someone else. I'll eagerly desire those gifts and I'll be willing to make mistakes and take risks so that I can learn to use them better and to encourage others with them. Or if I'm suffering, whether it's through chronic pain, whether it's cancer or suffering at the hands of others. I show I believe in the Spirit's power to endure by fighting despair and anxiety. I remind myself daily that my hope is not in this life, but in a day that will come, a day where there will be no suffering, a day when we will see Jesus face to face and all our hopes will be fulfilled. That is our third point. Hope for the future. See, in the same way that the wine at the wedding was a blessing and a sign, all the blessings that we enjoy now as Christians are signs. They are evidence of the Spirit in us who guarantees the inheritance that is yet to come. The master of the feast in John 2 verse 10 says, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. The trajectory is increase, abundance, blessings, the smaller signs leading to the greater signs, the poor wine leading to the good wine. Isaiah 9, 7 tells, tells us this. I wonder if you've ever thought about this. Of the increase of his government, that is Jesus' government, and of peace there will be no end. No end of increase. Jesus' rule and reign will constantly get bigger and better, with no end to how good it gets. As good as the blessings are now, then they will be even more. As good as the things that we have and enjoy now through the Holy Spirit, they are nothing in comparison to what we will experience with Jesus for all eternity in increasing measure, without end. And just when you thought it couldn't get any better, it does. 
And that will be our experience of life with Christ in heaven. It is just mind-blowing, isn't it? We can't even get our heads around how good that will be because we can't even imagine what life would be like without sin. But it is coming. That is our future hope. It's not now. And it's not now for Jesus either. Because Jesus is waiting for us. In Matthew 26, verse 29, Jesus promised that he will not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it new with us in his Father's kingdom. That means that he's not celebrating, he's not sitting down to enjoy it until he has finished his work of bringing us to himself. It's a guarantee that he will do it. You see this this wedding in John chapter 2 is just a picture of the real wedding. The wedding feast that we're told about in Revelation 19, where Jesus, the perfect bridegroom, will be joined eternally with his church. At that wedding feast, the wine will never run out. The perfect bridegroom will always provide abundant blessings for his church. And on that day, we will be singing. We will sing, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Jesus is looking forward to that day. He will not drink wine until it comes. Do you long for that day too? Is that where your hope is? Is Do you hope for it with a deep-seated desire for it to come? Then make yourself ready. Those who have made themselves ready are those whose lives testify to the hope that we have in Christ. It's lives that are just filled up with the good works that flow out of a hope in something more than this life. So as we renew our hope in Christ, as we set it firmly in Him, we find that the hope in the present is Christ at work in us, in His power. But our hope is not for now. Our hope ultimately is for the future when we will be with him forever. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we long for the day when Christ will come again in power and in glory. Lord, we long for not just relief from present pain and suffering, but we long to be with you in perfect relationship for all eternity. Lord, we know that it's coming. You've given us the Holy Spirit that guarantees the inheritance. It is a sure sign that it will come. Lord, and you've given us your spiritual blessings, blessings that we can enjoy even now as we look forward to enjoying greater blessings with you in heaven. Father, would you help us then to demonstrate 
genuine belief. Just like Andrew and John believed in Jesus that day, not knowing the final outcome. Lord, would you help us to believe too? Would you help us to trust you as we struggle through the things of life? Lord, would you bless those of us who struggle to believe that we've been truly forgiven? Lord, would you lift their eyes to gaze upon the Son of Man on the cross and give them faith to believe? Lord, would you grant those of us who are struggling to forgive others and would you give them the freedom to do so, that they might walk in the joy and the delight of that freedom that you've given them? And Father, we also pray for those who are suffering. Lord, whether it's chronic pain, whether it is job loss, or even persecution at the hands of others. Lord, would you comfort them in their suffering? Would you call them back from despair and anxiety? Lord, you grant them the fruit of patience and long-suffering through the work of your Holy Spirit in them. Lord, give them hope in you. And Lord, help us not to lose hope. Lord, that we would keep our eyes fixed on Christ, who will come again. Lord, help us to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Lord, as we await that great wedding feast of the Lamb, where we will drink of the good wine with Jesus. Oh, Father, we ask these things because you've promised already that you will do them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.